All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verses 23 to 32. Thus says the word of the Lord. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Well, the church in Corinth, as we know, was in disarray over internal problems and strife. And they failed to properly esteem and rightfully observe the Lord's Supper. And so the Apostle Paul writes to them to reiterate the instructions that he had given them concerning the celebration of the Supper of the Lord. And so I want to talk about this topic today using our text as we observe what the Apostle teaches about it here. This is the most complete, concise account that we have of the Lord's Supper and its significance in the New Testament. And we're, we are aware that the Lord instituted two sacraments for his church to observe. And those are, of course, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Sometimes they're called ordinances and more so in Baptist circles. But I prefer the term sacraments because ordinances is actually more broad and it's used in the Bible to refer to commandments in general. For instance, in 2 Kings 17 and verse 37, when it speaks of the commandments and statutes and ordinances of the law of Moses. And so that term ordinances lacks specificity and precision in describing precisely what this sacrament is. Sacraments, as Augustine famously taught, are visible signs of invisible grace. That's how he defined it. The word comes from the Latin, which originally meant oath of allegiance. It was used of soldiers in the military who would take an oath of allegiance to the cause for which they were fighting. 
And so there's some kind of oath value to it. There's some kind of even covenantal context to the term sacrament in its roots. But in the Christian tradition, the word sacrament became the Latin translation for the Greek word mystery. And so that term, as we use it now, conveys that significance, mystery. Sacraments are mysteries because, not because they're unintelligible to us, not because we know nothing about them, but rather through these sacraments as means of grace that Christ has ordained, the ineffable operations of the Holy Spirit of God work in ways that are beyond our comprehension. God works in mysterious and glorious ways, and that's what we're confessing when we call them sacraments. This sacrament goes by numerous names in Scripture. Our text calls it the Lord's Supper in verse 20. In Acts 2.42, it's referred to as the breaking of bread because it symbolizes Christ's body broken for us, crushed for us upon the cross. And we, through this sacrament, feed upon Christ and his benefits by faith to the satisfaction of our souls. In 1 Corinthians 10.16, it's called the cup of blessing because the cup was blessed at the Last Supper when the Lord instituted this sacrament, and it was adopted from one of the cups of the Passover meal, which was also called the cup of blessing. Further, because this cup overflows with blessings that God, by grace, bestows upon his people through the word and the sacrament. Like David says in Psalm 23, verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, he says. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. It's an abundant cup. It's an overflowing cup. God is not constrained or restrained. It is bestowal of the benefits of Christ upon us. And that's what the Lord's symbol symbolizes, the overflowing, superabounding grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord. In 1 Corinthians 10.21, it's referred to as the Lord's table. And table here stands by a usual figure. It's a figure of speech for the provisions that are spread upon it because it's a table at which the Lord invites his guests and at which he presides. The minister might provide, uh, preside in a, in a limited physical uh, temporal way here, but over this feast of the Lord's Supper, the Lord of hosts is the host. He is the one presiding. He is the master of the feast. And we are all guests at his house and graciously invited to sit at his table. Like Mephibosheth, who David invited to sit at the table. You know, he was technically unworthy to sit at the table. He was lame. He belonged to another dynasty. And it was totally unexpected, but... David sent him the invitation to feast at the king's table on a daily basis. We likewise, we are unworthy 
to sit at the table of the Lord, but the Lord in his generosity, the Lord in his benevolence, the Lord in his great love for us gives us this open invitation. And he says, come, all of you who are hungry, and come, all who are thirsty, buy, wet, buy bread and drink wine without money and without price. We come with empty hands to the Lord's table to receive of the fullness of Christ by his grace. In 1 Corinthians 10.16, it's called communion. Communion, koinonia in the Greek. Because through it we have fellowship with God and we partake of Christ's benefits and we also have fellowship with one another in the body of Christ. And true biblical koinonia is not merely a being present in the presence of others. It's not merely an enjoying of conversation with others, but true biblical koinonia is an impartation of self out of love to another and an impartation of them. There, there, there is a mutual reciprocal flowing of love, of participation, of fellowship. It's a spiritual reality. And that's what happens in the Lord's Supper, koinonia with the body of Christ. And so turning our focus now to our text, let's consider what the Apostle teaches about the Lord's Supper. And we'll look at first its institution, second its nature, third its purpose, and fourth its observation. Well, first of all, its institution. Look at verses 23 to 24a. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, that's where the term Eucharist came from, by the way, which means thanksgiving, because in the sacrament we give thanks in imitation of our Lord who gave thanks when he instituted it. And so when he had given thanks, he broke it, it says, and so the apostle here stresses that the Lord's Supper was instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is not the invention of man. This is not the invention of church tradition. This is not the decree of some pope or consul. This is the decree of Jesus Christ himself. The Bible contains four different accounts of the institution of the Lord's Supper, namely, and Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and here in 1 Corinthians 11. Now the setting in which our Lord instituted this supper was the last supper that he enjoyed with his apostles on the night before his crucifixion. And on that foreboding night, the deep, dark shadow of Gethsemane was already cast over the mind of Christ. He could already sense the solemn and fearful darkness of the wrath of God on account of the sins of his elect. The powers of hell were stirring and mobilizing to assault him with their worst. And he knew they were coming. It was at that supper that Satan entered into the heart of Judas Iscariot in order to mobilize him to betray our Lord and to do his bidding. 
But not only the powers of hell were gathering around our Lord Jesus Christ like the fierce lions of Bashan, ready to rip him apart, but also the fierce almighty wrath of God was about to breach the dam and would soon burst forth with holy fury upon him. But the fearfulness of it all couldn't abate our Savior's love for his disciples. He had longed to enjoy this feast of holy intimacy with them. And that's what they did. You know, the Gospel of John speaks of the disciple John who leaned over and laid his head on the bosom of the Lord Jesus. There's no better place to be than right in the heart of Christ our Lord. So imagine that. We read in Luke 22 that when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. This is on that solemn night. And then he said to them, just think about these words. With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Fervent desire. With fervent desire, I have desired. That's not a redundancy. It's an emphasis. He's stressing the great desire that he has. The Greek word that that's translated there, fervent desire, is trans, uh, it's used in other places in the New Testament to speak of not simply some desire, but of a desire that it's even used in a negative connotation to speak of lusting for sin, of longing for sin. Well, we, we might long for sin or lust for sin, but the Lord Jesus Christ longs for communion with his own. What a heart of selfless love. He was far, a far better friend to his disciples than, than they were to him. They constantly argued among themselves about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. They were constantly seeking to one-up one another. They were constantly guilty of unbelief in his person and miracles and power. They constantly misunderstood his teachings one of them would betray him to death. The others would fall asleep at his hour of greatest trial when he needed them most. He told them to watch and pray, and they all slumber. And then they would abandon him out of narcissistic self-preservation. Peter, perhaps the most devoted among them, would deny him three times in one night with cursing and swearing. And yet Christ's love for them is invincible. He knows all that's going to happen. He prophesied it would happen before it ever did. And yet he says with fervent desire, I long to be with you guys to enjoy this holy supper of intimacy and love, to simply enjoy your company, to impart myself and impart my words to you so that you may know me, so that we might be united together in love, invincible love, triumphant love. It triumphs over all their faults and all their sins. You know, in the Song of Songs, 
which is a picture of God's love for Israel. The love depicted there between the king and the Shulamite. It's a picture of the love between God and Israel. And Israel is a type of the church. And so, in chapter 8, in verses 6 and 7, when the Shulamite describes the love of her beloved king, she says to him, this is a picture of the church's description and praise of the love of Christ. She says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. And Christ's love and Christ's jealousy even took him to the grave out of love for his own. She says its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. That describes Christ's love for us. Christ's love for you, dear believer. Listen, the heart of Christ ardently desires to enjoy the company of his people, to feast with them in the holy place, to enjoy an intimate relationship of mutual giving and receiving in fervent love. He says to us, as the king said to the Shulamite in the song, you are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. There's no blemish in you. There's no imperfection in you. He's saying you're perfect. You are perfect and pure in my eyes. You're perfect for me, perfectly fitted for me. You have no blemish. You are fitted to me, my companion. You are the apple of my eye, the most lovely thing I've ever seen. You know, in another place of the psalm, he says, Oh, my love, don't even look at me. I cannot bear to see the look in your eyes. So overwhelmed was he with a heart melted in fervent love. That's the love of Christ for his church. Of course, he's aware of all our sins and all our infirmities and all our faults and all our obstinacies. He's aware of, them all, aware of them all far better than we are. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our sins better than we, in fact, know them. That's why David prays in the psalm, Search me, O God, and try me. See if there's any wicked way in me. Because David didn't rely on his own estimation, his own assessment, his own observations, or his own evaluation of things. Rather, he wanted to come into alignment with Christ's own judgment of him. But just as the Lord is more aware of our sins than we are, he's far more aware of the infinite love that he has for his bride than we ourselves consciously realize in our minds. His love and his atonement cover all our faults and all our sins if we've embraced Christ with a saving faith. And so, dear believer, when you feel haunted by the guilt of your past, when those phantoms and ghosts and, yes, demons come 
and the hounds of hell are breathing down your neck and throwing in your face all your stumblings and all your faults. You know, sin leaves brokenness. And once committed, we can often never repair it. We face the temporal consequences in this world. But the judicial punishment for that sin is paid in full with the blood of Jesus Christ. And so when your dirtiest sins defile your mind, remind yourself of Christ's love for you. Remind yourself. Preach the love of Christ to your own mind. Memorize the scriptures that speak of the love of Christ and the all-perfect atonement that he made on your behalf and recite them in your mind. Say them out loud. Proclaim them as praise. Sing them as hymns to God. For greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. That's why Christ instituted the Lord's Supper to give to his beloved bride a sign and seal of his dying love for her so that she wouldn't forget his love, so that she would have this perpetual token of remembrance that's shouting before the love of Christ, the love of Christ, the love of Christ. Manifested before her eyes. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.10 The Lord's Supper is not in the first place a sacrifice that we make, that we offer to Christ. This is not a gift that we bring, that we're offering to the Lord. This is God's gift to us. This is Christ himself giving himself to us in love. And we receive him by faith and feast on his love through the signs of the bread and the wine. So Paul says in our text, I received of the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Paul didn't institute the sacrament on his own authority. What he received by revelation, he communicated to the church just as he received it. The Lord Jesus alone has the authority to ordain sacraments for his church. Unless the sacraments come to us with divine authority. And they must be observed as a divine mandate. We can't invent sacraments for the church to observe. We have no authority to do so. That's the error of Roman Catholicism, which has literally concocted five additional sacraments that are not found in the word of God. But we must also not subtract from the sacraments, for we have no authority to omit their observance either. The Lord instituted the sacraments to be observed just as they are, no more and no less. So they bear a connected, integral relationship with the word of God. Second point, it's nature. Look at verses 24b to 25. First of all, look at the middle of verse 24 and notice the words, and said. He broke it, and said. Followed by the command of Christ, the words of Christ, by which he instituted the sacrament. 
Each sacrament is expressly ordained and warranted solely by the word of God. And because of this, the sacraments bear a close relationship with the word. Their effectiveness as a means of grace is owing solely to their divinely instituted relationship with the word of God and their role in mediating the truth of the word. Speaking of the nature of the Lord's Supper, it does not differ in spiritual nature in any way from the word of God. Both portray to us the same Christ, one verbally and the other visibly. Both are means of grace, but the word is primary, and the supper is theologically secondary to the word. The supper derives its significance from the word and must always be held forth in subordination to the word. Listen to the words of uh, Herman Bavink, a great Dutch Reformed theologian from the past. He said, and I quote, The sacrament is subordinate to the word. It is a sign of the content of the word, a seal that God has attached to his witness, a pillar, as Calvin puts it, which has been erected on the foundation of the word. He says, the word accordingly is something even much without the sacrament. But the sacrament is nothing without the word, and in that case has neither value nor power. It is nothing less but also nothing more than the word made visible. He says, all the benefits of salvation can be obtained from the word and by faith alone. While there is not a single benefit that could be obtained without the word and without faith from the sacrament alone. And so the nature of the Lord's Supper is such that it communicates to us the truth of the word of God. And our response to the supper must be the same as our response to the word of God, namely that of faith. Without faith in the word of God, the sacrament does not profit. So Christ's words of institution are vital and they bear a close relationship with the nature of the Holy Supper. And then our Lord says in verse 24, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. And in verse 25, he offers to us the cup, which is the new covenant in his blood. Here the Lord's pledging himself to us through the supper in love. He's saying, take and eat of me. Take and drink of me. He's offering us himself as well as all the benefits of his atoning work so that we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He says, for, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things. Oh, that we would feed upon Christ, not carnally, but spiritually, 
Not through the bread and wine alone, but through the word by faith as we observe the supper while looking to the ascended Christ in his risen glory at the Father's right hand. Christ does not descend to us in the supper. We're not literally eating his body and drinking his blood. Rather, through the supper, we have spirit-enabled communion with his body and blood as we look to him as the crucified mediator in heaven who dispenses his grace to his people on earth through his appointed means. So through the revelation of the Spirit and through the means of grace, we ascend to Christ by faith. He's not descending to us. We are ascending to him through the Spirit, in order to have spiritual fellowship with the living Christ, not a dead Christ that's still hung upon a crucifix, but, but with the living Christ, whose literal body and blood remain glorified in heaven. As Ephesians 2.6 says, God raised us up together and has made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And Ephesians 1.3, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The Lord's Supper is a heavenly banquet. It's a spiritual feast enabled by the outpoured spirit of Christ who unites us as members on earth to his fullness in heaven. There is a treasury of merit in heaven, by the way. But it's not like the Church of Rome describes. The treasury of merit is the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. There is an all-sufficiency in his person and blood, represented there. And our great high priest is our mediator who reigns in glory. And through the means of grace, we are drawing out of him from the fullness of his grace. To receive of that fullness. And so in the supper, Christ does not come down and transubstantiate or even circumscribe the elements of bread and wine. Rather, through the elements, we receive of the grace of the living Christ disclosed to the eye of our faith through the word. The elements of the supper on earth elicit from us the raising of our minds and hearts to heaven, where our faith makes transaction upon the person of Christ. We don't exercise faith directly in the bread and the wine. Those are instrumental means of faith. We look through them to the crucified, risen Son of God. And we feast on Christ spiritually and metaphorically, not physically, carnally, and literally. As Louis Burkhoff said, quote, the physical eating and drinking of these elements are indicative of a spiritual appropriation of the body and blood of the Lord, end quote. As we eat food to nourish our bodies, so we partake of the supper to nourish our souls as we feast upon God's Passover lamb. That's why the Lord said in John chapter 6, verses 53 to 56, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. 
For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. We feast on Christ by the appropriation of faith alone. There is no automatic working of the power of the Spirit by the mere fact that we observe the sacrament. It doesn't work ex opere operato, as the Church of Rome says, automatically by virtue of the ceremony performed. It does not work unless we appropriate Christ to us through faith. And so the sacrament is a help to our faith. And by offering us his body and blood to receive, the Lord Jesus is promising to us that we will receive of his benefits if we partake of the supper by faith in the word. The Lord's Supper, as Augustine said, and as Bavinck quoted, is the word made visible. That's what the sacrament is, the word made visible. It's Christ's pledge of himself to us the whole Christ, the total Christ, prophet, priest, and king, Lord and Savior, with all his benefits. It's God's pledge to us of all the promises of his word. Every promise that was purchased by the blood of the cross. Every promise that was brought into reality through the new covenant, the covenant of grace. And that means that the substance of every single promise of the word is is sealed to us through the supper. Because the 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. The supper does not communicate to us anything different or anything additional than that which the word itself does. But it does make the reality of the word more concrete and tangible, and it serves as an auxiliary help to our faith as we partake of the supper and meditation on the word. One of the Puritans said famously, in the Lord's Supper, we don't get a better Christ, but sometimes we get Christ better. It's a help to our faith. And so the supper, therefore, does not replicate the sacrifice of the cross. It does not recreate or represent the atonement. It's a memorial of Christ's perfect, finished satisfaction done once and for all 2,000 years ago. It's meant to cause us to remember and to contemplate the cross and to embrace the cross with an exercised and ever-growing faith. And so Paul cites the words of the Lord Jesus in verse 24, do this in remembrance of me. The supper is therefore a memorial. It's more than a memorial, but it's definitely a memorial. Third point, it's purpose. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so in this text, we have an explanatory statement that indicates purpose. Why should we observe the supper? To proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The supper has a proclamatory purpose with an eschatological, forward-looking view. 
to the future. First of all, it has a proclamatory purpose. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so the supper is not only the word made visible, but it's also more specifically the gospel made visible. That word proclaim in the Greek, karalego, is used repeatedly in the letters of Paul in association with the preaching of the gospel, with declaring the saving message of Jesus Christ. And the message proclaimed through the supper, namely Christ's death, you proclaim Christ's death, until he comes, that's the atonement. That's Christ in him crucified. That's the heart of the gospel. Thus the supper serves to keep the church centered on the gospel and grounded in its core truth. It's curious that during these epochs of church history where such a degeneracy pervaded in the theological teaching of the church, and the preaching of the word diminished, and the gospel wasn't clear that the church was still observing the Lord's Supper with the body and blood of Christ portrayed before the eyes of all. The basic substance of the gospel was there. The sacrament serves to ground us in the gospel, to remind us of the gospel, to bring us back to Christ, to keep us rooted in the right thing. And so the gospel is proclaimed in the supper symbolically and verbally and also corporately. Symbolically, the elements themselves represent the sacrifice of the cross. And when the church observes the supper, the symbols should be explained so that the gospel is proclaimed verbally as it is portrayed symbolically. And then when the congregation participates in the supper, each member is testifying publicly to their faith in the gospel. Each member is proclaiming personally the gospel and commending the gospel by their action of partaking. And so we're confessing Christ before men by partaking of the supper. And we are confessing with Paul in Romans 5, Every time we partake, that when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. And thus by eating and drinking, we are declaring openly before the congregation, before the witness of the holy angels, and before the, the witness of the watching world, we are proclaiming, I have no righteousness in myself. My only righteousness is that which Christ has provided for me on Calvary's tree. I'm saved only because of the Father's love, only because of the Son's blood, only because of the Spirit's grace. I have no hope apart from Christ's death. Sometimes a believer will refrain from partaking of the supper because he or she has stumbled into some temptation. But we don't earn a right to partake of the supper by doing good works or by pretending that we're perfect and free from sin. Of course, we should strive after the holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. Of course, we should confess and forsake our sins and repent of specific sins 
As the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith says, we should repent of our particular sins particularly. We should name them. We should war against them. We should confess them and forsake them. But our conduct is not our right of access to the table. Our conduct, to be clear, can disqualify us from the right to partake if it conflicts with our profession of faith and our testimony. But our conduct does not purchase for us the right to partake because our right, our privilege, our access is by grace alone. On account of Christ's redeeming love for us, that great bleeding love he manifested when he paid for our sins, not in part, but in full. So when you eat of the supper, it's not to say, I'm holier than thou. I'm better than the people that have no right to partake. Not at all. Rather, it's to say, I confess my wretchedness, but I also confess that as many as received him, to them he gave the right, the right, the blood-bought right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. And I believe, and therefore as a child of God, my Lord has given me the invitation to sit at the table of my Father and to eat and to drink to my heart's satisfaction. I'm not proclaiming my trust in my own inherent righteousness. I'm in fact renouncing that. That's what we're doing when we partake. We are renouncing our own righteousness. But we say, but I'm proclaiming the Lord's death. And that's my testimony. That's my hope. That's my assurance. That's my confidence. I'm not partaking to claim how great my love is for Christ, but rather to testify to how great his love is for me, even for me. And so in the supper, we look back at the death of Christ, and we look up to the risen Christ, reigning in glory, but we also look forward to Christ coming again. Verse 26 says, You proclaim the Lord's death until... He comes. The supper is a promise and pledge that our Lord will come again to take us home. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it with you anew in the kingdom of God. We will feast with the Lamb in his kingdom. And so it's a foretaste of heaven. It's a preliminary taste of our communion with Christ that will be enjoyed more fully at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so as we partake, brethren, we should sanctify our thoughts to the contemplation of divine things, of eternal verities, of heavenly glories, of holy realities. And most of all, we should ravish our minds with concentrated thoughts concerning the peculiar glories of Christ's person and work, his person in all its fullness, and his work in all its aspects. And finally, it's observation. It's observation. Look at verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. 
And now what does it mean to eat and drink in an unworthy manner? Well, I think there's at least two levels of meaning that we have to take into account. First of all, as we said, our right of access, our judicial right of access to the table is by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. We have no inherent worthiness in ourselves. So as faith embraces Christ, justification takes the place of condemnation. His righteousness covers our forensic unworthiness legally and judicially before the throne of God. And therefore, if an unconverted person who has not exercised genuine faith in Jesus Christ as that faith is described in Scripture, decides to partake of the Lord's table, they're only adding to their condemnation and provoking a more severe judgment upon themselves. The unconverted are already under condemnation. John 3.36 says, The one who believes in the Son is not condemned, but the one who does not believe is condemned already. The, the wrath of God is upon him. They're condemned already. But by intruding into holy things, into which they have no right of access by the blood of Christ, they are profaning the holy and incurring the judgment of the all-seeing, omniscient, almighty God upon themselves. Paul describes some of these in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 9 and 10. But he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, that's a message that needs to be preached today, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. In short, those who are practicing known, willful, conscious, obstinate sin with an unbroken pattern, without repentance, without genuine faith in Jesus Christ, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And since such people have neither part nor lot with Christ nor his benefits, it's nothing other than a provocation of the holy wrath of God to partake of his holy sacraments. And so as Paul says, such eat and drink judgment to themselves. There is no benefit in the Lord's Supper to those who have not faith. There was a view in Puritan New England in the days of around the founding of our nation where quite a few ministers held this view that the Lord's Supper is a converting ordinance. And they would invite the unconverted to partake so that perhaps in the action of partaking, the Spirit would bring them to faith. Curiously, I know a person that was converted in the observance of the Lord's Supper in precisely that way. But that is not God's appointed means. That's not his appointed purpose for the supper. God can work above and outside means. He's the sovereign God. He can do what he pleases. But that is not the normative practice for his church according to the word. 
And so, if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with saving faith, please do not partake of the sacrament. If you do, you do so at your own peril. But second, there's another level of meaning here, and I think this gets more to the heart of what the apostle is saying. He's saying it's possible for genuine believers to partake in an unworthy manner. Because Paul is addressing a specific problem at the church at Corinth. And from that specific problem, he's extrapolating a more general principle. The problem was that there were carnal divisions in the church. We see that in the context immediately leading up to our verses. There's carnal contention. The Corinthians were partaking of the supper which is an expression of communion with the body of Christ, but they were at variance with one another, with heated contentions and jealousy and disputes and pride, even litigations against one another. And that's what he's getting at in verse 29, when he says, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. There's a, there's a double meaning to not discerning the Lord's body. First of all, it has to do with not discerning the true nature and purpose of, of the sacrament as representing the body of Christ and the spiritual significance and theological significance of what it means to partake. But also, it's a double illusion. It's a double illusion. There's not two meanings, but there's a double illusion. And the other illusion is to Christ's body, the church. The Corinthians were not esteeming their brethren in love. They were not esteeming the sacredness of the body of Christ. They were rather in contention with other members of the body of Christ. And so, this brings us to, you know, the the application here that before partaking of the supper, you know, we need to forgive from the heart those who have sinned against us. We need to do all that is in our power reasonably, according to the dictates of Scripture, to reconcile with brethren that we have offended. And the more general principle is this. From the particular instance of that sin in which they were engaged, we can also extrapolate a more general principle, and it's this. If we are continuing in the practice of any known conscious pattern of sin, again, without repentance, that disqualifies us from being able to partake rightfully. There has to be a consistency between our testimony and our profession of faith. And so, dear believer, if you're practicing ongoing willful sin, and it's an ongoing practice and pattern in in your life, and it's not broken off by genuine repentance and renewed obedience, then you should not partake. You must first repent. But if you partake anyway, you might deceive men, but you don't deceive God. And you put yourself at great peril. Now, if you're a genuine believer... You don't put yourself in peril of the eternal wrath of God, but you do put yourself in peril of temporal chastisement and temporary judgments 
Like Paul says to the Corinthians, for this reason, many of you are sick and some sleep. That is, they're dead. They, they were struck dead somehow by the judgment of God. And so just as the priests had to consecrate themselves before serving in the tabernacle, we should consecrate ourselves anew to the Lord, examining ourselves, confessing our sins, causing our faith to transact upon the risen Christ of heaven, receiving of his grace, surrendering ourselves anew to the Lord. And that's why the apostle says in verse 28, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so here the apostle issues an imperative that is binding upon us all as a moral obligation and duty, and that's this. Before partaking of the supper, we should engage in sober self-examination. Self-examination is necessary before partaking of the supper. But what are we examining for? The presence or absence of sin, first of all, that needs to be confessed and forsaken. And we're seeking to discern whether we know in our experience ongoing, sincere confession of sin, ongoing, sincere, spirit-wrought repentance, and a pattern of progressive and growing sanctification in our lives. And so ask yourself, am I harboring some secret sin that I refuse to confess to the Lord, that I refuse to renounce and make right? If so, you should not partake until you go with God and make things right. That doesn't have to be some elaborate, drawn-out process. You can believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. You can deposit all your faith and trust in the bosom of the Son of God right now and receive his free, full forgiveness. But maybe, maybe you're struggling with sin and you do confess it, but you keep practicing the very same sin and you're apathetic about it. You're content in your sin. You're in a lukewarm state, perhaps. And any believer can fall into this. And you fail to battle and to war against your sin. Well then, your confession is probably not sincere. You have to truly recognize it for what it is. You have to truly evaluate your spiritual condition and be honest before God. Lay your heart bare before God. Be honest with your conscience. Let's say you sincerely confess your sin to the Lord, but it continues to harass and to tempt you. That's not uncommon. But you're resisting your sin and you're battling against it constantly and sometimes you succeed in overcoming it and sometimes you succumb to the temptation and you fail. But you feel defiled by it and it really weighs down your conscience. Should you partake? Well, ultimately, you have to listen to your conscience as informed by God's word. Study the word carefully. And again, be honest with yourself. If you find yourself in this condition, seek out help. Seek out brethren who are spiritually mature that you can have confidence with. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed, James says. And if anyone desires to speak with me and 
perhaps I can offer some, some biblical counsel, I'd, I would be very, very glad to do that. The bottom line is, the Lord's Supper should be celebrated by every genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who is not discrediting their testimony by questionable or shameful conduct. And so if you're a genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're walking with the Lord and with a humble heart, with sincere faith, although with a much imperfect walk, remember the supper is not because we have great faith, it's a help to our weak and staggering faith, then you're welcome to partake. If you're a genuine believer, you're welcome to partake. And so bless the Lord, receive the gift of his sacrament with thanksgiving, and rejoice in Christ's redeeming love for you. But if you know you're not right, then I ask you, please let the elements pass and spare your soul from the grief of suffering with the, the, the consequences of meddling with the holy. Let's pray. Oh, dear Lord, we live in the midst of a culture with a pervading view among the evangelical church that is minded to trifle with holy things. We do not want to trifle, Lord. We pray that you would give us grace, pardon our sins, and help us, Lord, to set our minds and hearts on Christ, to meditate on his glories, that we may partake of your supper with faith to the benefit of our souls. And please help us now to sing and to rejoice in so great a salvation that Christ our Lord has given to us. In his name we pray. Amen.